0: Well, welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. Australian hunting podcast, hunting, shooting, and fishing radio. Thanks for joining me. I do appreciate it. I just picked up a bit of equipment today, actually, guys. I want to thank all the people on Patreon that support me on Patreon with your monthly donations. Just wanted to let you guys know where the money goes. Um, I'm going to try and get uh, podcasts out a little bit quicker than I normally do. I mean, I know that I do them every fortnight, and that's what you guys are used to, and that's probably what I'll continue. Uh, but this is more of a streamlined process, and uh, it was about 900 bucks. and I want to thank all the Patreon supporters that support me on the show that was your guys money that was able to help me get that and increase my workflow so i just wanted to say thanks to that if you like the show uh, you want to support me on patreon please do patreon.com forward slash ahp if you'd like to throw a few dollars my way you like the show you're listening to it right now and you do enjoy it supporting the show is always appreciated on today's show uh, I've got a very good guest. His name is Tom Frame. He just recently just wrote a book, Gun Control, What Australia Got Right and Wrong. Uh, he's a professor, an archbishop, and he also is the director of the Public Leadership Research Group at the Howard Library. Uh, and He's going to join me on the show in just a few moments. Tom is a firearms owner, and he also owns a farm in Goulburn in just south of Sydney. So we're going to have a good spirited discussion about why he wrote the book, certain things he believes in in regards to the book, and what Australia can do going forward when discussing firearms laws. So I'm going to bring him onto the show. Professor Tom Frame, welcome to AHP. Thank you for joining me coming on the show, and uh, we are backwards and forwards a little bit, but we're finally here, so thanks for coming onto the show to have a chat about your book. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, I want to find out a bit about yourself first. Um, give us a little bit of a history. I guess I probably hadn't heard from you until you wrote this book, so I'd love to hear, uh, just tell me about yourself, you know, history, work, life, professional, what you do, just to give a bit of background about yourself.
1: Well, I was born in Sydney in 1962, and I was adopted at birth. I grew up in Wollongong. My father was a tractor driver at the Port Kembla Steelworks, and my mother looked after my adopted sister and I. Uh, my father drank too much and at times could be a cruel and violent man. And uh, he, uh, you know, made life difficult for me when I was growing up as a child. But I thought education was an important thing, and in his own way, he did too. So I worked hard at school. Uh, just after my 16th birthday, I was selected to join the Royal Australian Naval College at Jarvis Bay. And so. I left Wollongong, went uh, 70 miles south to the Naval College. I was a naval officer for 15 years. At the end of that time, I was the speechwriter to the chief of the naval staff. I'd started writing books in the early 1990s on matters of naval history and continued to write. I left the Navy, though. I felt a call to the Anglican ministry. I was ordained an Anglican priest in the end of 1993. And then seven years later, after serving in Wagga, and uh, Binder and Bungendul. I became the bishop to the Defence Force, which I was for five and a half years. I was then the principal of a theological college, training other clergy, still writing books through that period about everything from naval mutinies to uh, uh, reproductive technology to a book, the the big biography of Harold Holt and things like that. Uh, In 2010, uh, my wife and I bought a farm and I also, while I was still working in Canberra, and so I became a part-time farmer, and that's when I uh, became a licensed firearm owner, and I then, in subsequent years, I acquired uh, handguns, long arms, and shotguns. So my perspective on shooting is mainly as uh, as a farmer and as a sporting shooter. done a little bit of hunting. Uh, I stand in awe of those who are hunters because uh, there's a lot of demands for hunters to uh, to practice their recreation. And in the book that I've written recently, Gun Control, What Australia Got Right and Wrong, it, for me, was just another book of the kind of books I write which are about public policy, individual rights and those kinds of things. My present job is Director of the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library at Old Parliament House and I also run the University of New South Wales Public Leadership Research Group. And it's in the context of leadership also that I've tried to consider questions concerning firearms legislation.
0: So when you first got into firearms about 10 years ago, what was the main factor getting you into firearms? Was there something in particular that sort of sparked your interest? Was it hunting? Was it sports shooting? Obviously a bit late bloomer towards the end of your life, which is still great, getting more shooters into the sport. What was that one thing that sort of said, mm, I'm thinking about getting my gun licence, that sounds like fun?
1: Look, I could dress it up and say it, was, it would help me be a farmer, but to be honest, um, Jason, it was fun. I, I've always enjoyed shooting. We did a little bit of shooting. When I was in the Navy but uh, with no great precision and no great skill and so when I went onto the farm uh, I could then uh, have my own shooting range uh, which I I have Uh, and I started to find that I just liked shooting and then people led me into okay these are the different disciplines. Um, I don't think I'm a very good shooter, I think I'm competent as a farmer that I'm not a great sporting shooter, and when it comes to hunting, just being outside, uh, walking around, walking around at night, enjoying nature, those kind of things um, are the things that draw me to to firearms.
0: What sort of disciplines have you gotten into in uh, firearms? Is it clay targets or are you sort of paper shooting or revivals? What's your sort of go-to?
1: Well, mainly paper shooting because um, I take a lot of time uh to make sure that my my rifles are accurate because like any farmer, uh I want to shoot the right things and not the wrong things. So if it's ferals, uh I want to make sure I'm on target. And I have to say of the firearms that I have, I came to shotguns last but I couldn't quite get shotguns. And then a friend of mine said, Well come, bit of uh bit of clay shooting, uh, and I enjoyed that. Uh, I suppose a moving target. Uh, well feral animals are moving but I just thought oh the shotgunning is fun. So uh I got a few few of each and um The important thing for me is that I'm always learning something. It doesn't matter what it is in life. Um, I find that the best way to enrich your life is to say, look, here's something new. And uh, certainly uh, with shooters I've been with, I say, explain to me why you do what you do. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me how I can get better. So I see life as one big, long learning curve. And certainly when it comes both to farming, for me, coming to, to farming in my late my late 40s and shooting at the same time it's a great opportunity to meet different people and learn different things
0: absolutely what about farming what are you farming on the property?
1: Well we've got a few sheep but we really just use as grass cutters so I've got a couple of uh, dozen fine merinos but really we have uh, we have black Angus cattle which we breed for beef um, we uh, and I live near Goulburn in New South Wales i like most farmers have the problem of marsupials. fields. Uh, you know, kangaroos even get stuck in fences, less so with wallabies. We have the occasional pig problem. And like anybody, there's rabbits, hares, um, foxes, uh, things like that. But, you know, if they're not active in getting rid of them, uh, then they overwhelm what they're trying to do and they do become a pest. So one of the things I don't think that city people understand is the important role that hunters have and other shooters have in controlling feral animals. They are a huge problem. And where I live, and I live, you can almost see the lights of Canberra from where I live. The problem that we have with feral animals uh, is serious. Now, if there were no private firearm ownership, then all of those people who are doing things which actually protect the natural environment by dealing with ferals, that wouldn't happen. But that's not appreciated by some people who feel the need to be adversaries to shooters.
0: Absolutely. What about um, you know, family members? Did any of them get into shooting as well? Maybe maybe your children. I'm probably sure you've got children. Did they get into it or anyone else in the family? Are you sort of a bit of, bit of the lone wolf in regards to owning the firearms?
1: <laughs> well, look, I've got two daughters and two granddaughters. Uh, and uh, my granddaughters kind of watch me uh, sighting my, my firearms and things like that, but they're too young to shoot. but They're interested and they want to. My own daughters, one of them is more interested in the other because one's more of a country girl, the other's more of a city dweller. But my wife also has her uh, firearms license, so we're both licensed shooters. She was formerly in the Army and in the Army Reserve, so we've got a a military uh, background in our family and in our own lives. And so um, my wife likes shooting as well. And unfortunately, sometimes when I'm away, and she says, you know, usually it's when I'm away, a kangaroo gets caught in the fence. And if you have a hinge joint fence and you've seen a kangaroo catch its leg in it, it really is an ugly sight. The animal's distressed. Uh, The only way to deal with it is to shoot the animal. And uh, that's sad. But if you care for animals when they're in distress like that, you have to take that action. And uh, my wife deals with kangaroos and with foxes because uh, she's seen what foxes have done to lambs what they do to lambs, and uh, she's merciless when it comes to foxes. So uh, I'm happily supported by my wife in my own interest in firearms.
0: Absolutely. Just talk about firearms. Are you just your standard category A and B firearms owner or your primary producer category C or D? Um,
1: Well, um, fortunately, I'm a primary producer. So I have a semi-automatic rimfire and I've got a semi-automatic shotgun. And so uh, and I would want to stress they're all legal, uh, I have a category C license and uh, they're all registered. So I've got those two. I mean, that partly leads me to ask questions about why the categories and the prohibitions exist as they do. Uh, but certainly uh, I've got what the law allows me to have. And to be honest, Jason, as a farmer, the kind of farming I do, uh, A's, B's, uh, and my C, uh, my C firearms meet all of my needs. Uh, and when it comes to the handguns, to be honest, they're just for recreation. Tell
0: us a, I'm sure we'll get into a, you know, some, some of that information just a little bit later, but I want to concentrate on the earlier questions, which would be fantastic. The, you wrote a book called Gun Control, What Australia Got Right and Wrong. What prompted the, uh, to tackle such a topic in the book?
1: Well, the two things. Um, I mean, the first of all is that I'm director of the Howard Library and I have a lot to do with John Howard. i see Mr. Howard every early month. He and I don't share the same views, and no one will be surprised listening to this program hear that he and I don't have the same views on the National Firearms Agreement. I've had the benefit of discussing this with him on numerous occasions, and we've agreed to disagree. Now, when it comes to the Howard government, people say, oh, one of the great things that it did was to refine the firearm laws. Well, I think there were some good things about the NFA, but there were lots of bad things about the NFA. And my publisher, University of New South Wales Press, and the particular book that we're talking about now is my 47th book. So uh, I kind of write books. That's part of what I do in my job. They came to me and said, look, they thought there was sufficient public interest in this subject that I should write a book about gun control. Now, I said that I'd write a book that maybe would infuriate both sides because uh, I'd want to say some things that gun owners would not like. I'd want to say some things blind the gun control lobby. Um, would not like Uh, but i said that's fine and as we'll discuss i think it's from the middle ground which is where we need to seek the kind of reforms that i think are possible in australia at the moment and the book tries to put an argument for that
0: since 96 people have been you know they've been demonized if they even dare question which you know no doubt you've just received since being on abc radio national if you even dare question the validity of the gun laws Uh, I mean, did this enter your mind when you were writing the book? Because often when this happens, you question things like gun laws. People are ridiculed, as you've experienced, you know, booted out of public life. uh, They have their reputation damaged. I mean, did that bother you at all when you were sort of, you know, considering writing the book and during the the writing of the book?
1: Well, Jason, look, no one wants to be criticised and certainly no one wants to be ridiculed. And I thought that in wanting to say, here is a modest proposal for the kinds of changes which I thought legislators would accept and the Australian people would be at least open to considering, I thought that I'd not get some of the response that I have received. Which is, on the gun control side, I've been accused of having uh, horrendous views. Uh, people have asked what planet I'm living on. That uh, you know, I must be an advocate for the NRA, and I must somehow be you know this wolf and sheep's craving for the gun bobby. Uh, now, I was surprised in one sense by its vehemence, but also I think elements of its untruthfulness. But all I'm simply saying is there are a number of things that could be reformed in legislation that will not make the Australian people less safe. Therefore, let's look at those things. But I'm aware that there are some shooters who would say, I am weak or I'm a fence-sitter or I'm taking an easy position. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. But I'm trying to say is, and what our, where our discussion is heading is, there are some things that shooters might want which will not happen in the current political environment. There are some things that might happen, some reforms that could be pursued. What are they? How do you secure them? And I think part of it is saying to the non-shooting community, um, shooters are 99.9% law-abiding, responsible, ethical, sensible people. Therefore, it is possible for us to change the law in such a way that none of us and none of our safety will be in peril. Let's think about those things. So not everyone gets what they want. I know certainly, though, that those on the gun control lobby are of the view that any change is a total capitulation and that if they change anything of the National Firearms Agreement, well, the whole thing will go. Well, that's just hysterical and wrong. Um, Middle ground, what's possible, what's feasible, um, that's the place to start. And if small changes prove to be non-problematic, there's no reason then for people to say, there may be other areas we can have a look at too. But the idea, and you've pointed this out, that shooters have been demonised, there's something terribly wrong about a popular culture which says of one million citizens who are licensed firearm owners that they're somehow dangerous or irresponsible or need to be contained. Um, There is still ill will towards shooters. That's unfair, and I hope that can change too.
0: And speaking of that, and we'll go on a little bit later about uh, where you stand, but I want what do we need to do then? I mean, to be honest, I, I look back, I'm 38 years old. I probably got into firearms when I was 20. I didn't really do much with them until probably my late 20s per se, until I really got into it. It was actually when I went to America on a dove hunting trip with a friend from Texas. And I, ever since then, I've been hooked. What do we need to do? We have political parties. We have organisations. I mean, like I've been saying before, they haven't really achieved anything on the NFA in over 23 years. So what do we need to do? How can we move forward? Well, I think the first
1: thing is the thing that you have promoted on your program, which is responsible, law-abiding gun ownership. In other words, if you have a licence and you have safe storage and you have all of your firearms registered and you use them as and when and how the law allows you to, then that's the way of saying to those who, for whatever reason, choose to be our adversaries, is to say, no, no, we are responsible, we are law-abiding, we don't represent a threat to the general community. Now, anyone listening to this will say that's just an obviousism, but it isn't to some people, and it isn't some people who want to disparage firearm owners. So all of us need, together, to be responsible in our licensing and registration of, of firearms. The second thing that I think we need to do is say, and continued with this line, there are some things in this agreement that can be reformed which will not and which can't be shown to reduce community safety. Because as you have alluded, I made some remarks on Radio National about very modest reforms to firearm legislation. And one week later, Radio National felt the need to invite Simon Chapman, who's well-known to gun owners as someone who is an ardent adversary, I think, of shooters, I had to get him on, both, I think, to ridicule and demean me, but to say that I was making outrageous claims and that somehow I was a spokesman for nefarious forces in our community, of which I'm not. I'm not a member of any shooting organisation, none. I deliberately uh, made sure that I had no affiliation so that no-one could say, I'm a spokesman for that group or some other group. So I think that all we can do within a democracy is say, there is scope for reform. You can reform without having adverse effects. These are the reforms. Let's look at them and then build a constituency of support. I think those are the two things that we can do, and we need to be patient as we do them. Now, I know why people are not, because you said 23 years have passed. I'm willing to be patient to get the kind of reforms that we all want and I think are quite reasonable.
0: Yeah, we'll discuss the political parties a little bit later, but I want to concentrate on some of the, initially at the start, some of the good things you said, which I really enjoyed from the book towards the end. Um, you know, Can you tell us about what changes you personally would make? Um, Obviously, these were discussed at the end of the book, things like appearance laws, gun barrel lengths, handgun calibers, military appearance clauses, for an example, and things like... Folding stocks. I can own things in Queensland. I can't own here. There's no uniformity. Uh, it's just. It's just really the NFA is an absolute failure in my opinion.
1: Well, I think in those things, um, Jason, it's just excessive. I mean, there's things that are there because we need to remember that a lot of lot of these regulations were actually drafted in 1991, not in 1996. They were drafted in 1991 when Bob Hawke was the prime minister. After both Hoddle Street and Queen Street in nineteen eighty seven and the Strathfield Plaza episode with Wade Franken in nineteen ninety one, there were proposals drafted. So when John Howard was able to to put a draft NFA to the police ministers in May of nineteen ninety six, a lot of that was not written by him, was not written at that time, it was written earlier. Now, my view is that there's a whole range of things there, technical specifications that makes no sense. And you've mentioned quite a number of them. They just do not relate to community safety. The two other things, I suppose, the big things that I would argue that we could get we could get rid of without any great detriment, the first one would be, um, I think, extending licence periods from five years to 10 years. And I said that would make no difference whatsoever. All of your listeners will know that if they do anything wrong, if they come to the notice of any law enforcement agency, then they're going to lose the right of access they have to their firearms. So uh, I think changing the licensing arrangements at the moment, it's not really anything other than a renewal. You get to five years, it's rolled over. There are no new tests, checks, balances. Someone doesn't ring you up and say, is your mental health stable and have you threatened anybody in personal relationships? There's none of that. It's just a renewal. Make that five to ten That would be a sensible thing to do while we still have all the provisions that mean that if someone misbehaves, they lose access to their firearms. The second thing is to get rid of some of the, um, I think, silly things around cooling off periods. Um, If you have one firearm, then what's the point of having multiple cooling off periods for those which you require afterwards? I can't see the point of that. I've spoken just to some police friends. They just think, look, it's overly, it's overly uh, intrusive. Uh, as a regulation, it hasn't made any difference to anyone in terms of community safety. So these kind of things could be reasonably reviewed, reformed, changed, and nothing would happen in terms of the Australian people thinking that they're less safe.
0: I mean, what about things like in other countries, Europe, uh, you know, suppressors are almost mandatory in some countries, especially uh, when going out helping farmers. I mean, suppressors here are treated like, you know, everyone's going to turn into a Hollywood sniper. What about suppressors? What's your thoughts on those?
1: Well, I'm um, you. I, I, for the life of me, can't see what the problem with them is, given that some countries, as you pointed out, make them mandatory. And that was certainly the case in New Zealand. So... I know for me that if suppressor was available, particularly as I have to deal with feral animals, that uh, if I could dispatch a few without frightening the rest, it would make more efficient the work that I have to do. So those are the kind of things. Now, I would say, and you may or may not agree, that slightly more controversial, because I think we would find the police may have a view on that. They may say, well, hang on, that's gonna make our job harder. So I haven't put that in my list of things I would want to change. But I'm certainly open to that possibility and talking to stakeholders and say, hey, look, if we did this, what would be unintended consequences or what would be the things that might happen that we're that not currently, you know, thinking about that for instance criminals might make use of this to further their activities. Um, things like that would be the kind of things we could talk about. But I wouldn't put that necessarily at the top of my list. Now other shooters might. They might say, well, that's more important to me than the ones that you've the calibre, scolding stocks, whatever. But that's where I think a conversation can happen. And all the reforms won't happen at once. Um, They will happen uh, sequentially. And that means that as each reform occurs and there isn't a, a reduction in community safety, people then are more likely to be confident, okay, we did that. There weren't adverse consequences. Let's then have a look at something else. Now, Gun control people will say, oh, well, you just want to chip away at the whole thing. No, I don't. My point is that if you can't demonstrate that something has a bearing on community safety, then it's just unnecessary regulation and it should be challenged
0: the question is if we can't even get you know reform on the small stuff as you said let's say small stuff might be military appearance laws um, permits to acquire getting rid of those because they're you know wasteful and ineffective do we really have a chance going forward the world's changing i guess the world was changing you know probably been changing for the last 30 or 40 years do we we really have any chance of actually achieving anything when you know we hear the left you know as soon as something happens they're barking well they want to water it down they want less restrictions and I'm coming from the point of view, yeah, I do want less restrictions. I don't make any qualms about that. I'm happy to say that as soon as they ask about it, everyone, our organisations, our political parties, they go into their shell and say, oh, we can't say that. We want to be seen to be doing the right thing and then start agreeing with gun control measures. This is my problem with the, the situation we're in right now. A lot of our organisations, a lot of our political parties have just been pushed into this current NFA agreement and they're now starting to support it, which is becoming quite scary.
1: Well, I think, I mean, the first part of your question was, can we achieve anything? Well, I wrote a book hoping that we could achieve something. Will we achieve everything, say, that some shooters want? Well, not in the initial, I think, uh, not in the initial phase of reform. People will, for better or for worse, but I'm not defending, Jason, this situation. It just is. In the current climate, you can only achieve modest reforms. To say, well, you know, why don't we just ask for the lot? Well, you won't get the lot. You'll only get modest reforms. And when modest reforms are acceptable and the world doesn't fall in, then there's possible of getting more. So I I wouldn't want your listeners to think, oh, somehow I'm a fence-sitter because I'm a fence-sitter because I don't want to offend anyone. I seem to, in many ways, have offended everyone only because I'm trying to say that we have to start with those things which are possible. If someone came along and said, well, these are my list of demands, or this is my inventory of reforms, I would say that isn't a good strategy, that's not a good tactic. And if you say it's all or nothing, in the current climate, it will be nothing. The Australian Hunting Podcast is the only hunting, shooting and fishing podcast radio show in Australia. With over 40,000 downloads per month, you are sure to find some information that can help you. If you love hunting, shooting, fishing, and a little bit of politics, the Australian Hunting Podcast has you covered. To listen, check us out on iTunes and visit AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au. Let's say in 1996
0: you were John Howard. This is an interesting question, I think, um... What would you have done in 1996? You were John Howard. There's been a mass shooting of 35 people. What would you have done? What laws would you uh, have put in place? I mean, we're seeing in New Zealand right now, they're not even going anywhere as near as far as uh, they did in Australia, still keeping semi-automatic shotguns up to five rounds, pump shotguns, you know, uh, rim fires, uh, 10, Ruger ten twenty twos, for an example. Uh, looks like the Nationals are not going to accept the second tranche of gun reform for registration, which is wasteful and ineffective, you know, being Australia one of the, almost one of the last countries in the world to register firearms. So what would you have done in 1996? What would your reaction have been uh, to a tragedy? Would you have done the exact same thing as John Howard, or would you have been a bit more reasonable?
1: Uh, Look, it's a difficult question because I'm deliberately not a politician because I don't think I'd be a very good one because I would want to consider the options uh, a little more slowly than they did at that time. I mean, if you recall, uh, the events of Port Arthur were the, the 28th of April and the police ministers were meeting on the 10th of May. That doesn't give a great deal of time for consideration of some of the issues. Now, that was partly because some shooting organisations had said basically before 1996 they'd accept no reforms and I think the government said well if if we're going to get to this situation we'll impose all of them on them rather than none I think what I would have done was probably um, headed in the direction of licensing if someone is considered a, uh, a suitable person to own a firearm then I'd probably go as far as licensing and In many jurisdictions, that seems to have have worked. And now, whether that would have been acceptable to the electorate, whether that would have been acceptable to the other parties that John Howard was facing in Canberra, um, that's a kind of moot point. Um, But I I do think, and this is why I've written in the book, that I do think they went too far on some things. They didn't hold a mirror up to their own legislation and say, would some of these measures actually make the population safe? Part of the problem, I think, Jason, was there was a lack of focus about what they were doing. These um, reforms or these impositions, if if you want to call them that, um, they were brought in because of shooting sprees in public places. Now, there've only ever been four of the kind where the perpetrator and the victims did not know each other. So there's two in 87, one in 91, one in 96. That was the reason that the laws were brought in. Yet, very quickly... There was a slide. Oh, well, if we bring in these laws, it will also help homicide, suicide, gun crime. Now, um, Simon Chapman would criticise me and say, well, they've achieved their measure, which is there's not been a shooting spree in a public place. Therefore, it's worked. I would say that's selective because Alan Zhang at Monash University with his handguns was a shooting spree. He just didn't kill more than four people. So they haven't worked. They didn't stop Alan Zhang from doing what he did. I would also go on to say, That John Howard himself says, in defence of his own regulations, that they've helped homicide, suicide and gun crime. So you can't have it both ways. Now, if it was only intended to stop shooting sprees in public places, then the legislation shouldn't have looked like it looks. It actually presumes or tries to do more things than I think it's suited to do, and therefore uh, I think there was overreach in what they were wanting to do and not enough clarity about the objective uh, they were seeking.
0: If, if if they were just trying to stop mass shootings, I mean, why ban all these other types of firearms as well? I guess you just alluded a bit to it as well. I mean, why ban the you know, Ruger 10 Why ban certain types of shotguns? At the end of the day, if they were trying to you know, stop mass shootings, why ban these other firearms?
1: Um, well, <laughs> I'm in one sense the wrong person to ask, because I agree with you. Um... Now, if they'd said, if they had said, right, we are going to deal with the firearm that was implicated, the kind of firearm that was implicated in Hoddle Street, Queen Street, Strathfield Plaza and Port Arthur, right, you're not going to be able to have an AR-15 or some variant. In other words, uh, a um, uh, semi-automatic center fire rifle. You can't have that because you know that's the weapon of choice that, of people who do these kinds of things. And that's one thing. Going further and doing these other things, I think, was the ill-thought-out part. So I'm agreeing with you that if all you wanted to do was deal with shooting sprees in public places, you might have said, OK, um, AKs, ARs and all those variants, they're gone, but people can have everything else. I cannot, for the life of me, understand how we can have semi-automatic handguns, but then at the same breath not be allowed to have semi-automatic long arms, unless you're a farmer and then only a rimfire. Um, that just doesn't make sense. In fact, you could argue that if you're going to have a shooting spree in a public place, you would do it with a handgun, not a long arm, because it's easier to hide the fact that you've got it. So there is illogicality there. But if the point of the laws was simply to stop a shooting spree in a public place, it wouldn't and shouldn't have many of the features um, that it contains. So on that point, you and I are agreed.
0: I want to just start off just uh, in the introduction. I thought I just wanted to read the passage out just so because obviously people probably listen to this show. They're not going to have read the book. It says, to to declare my own hand, I'm a licensed firearm owner, but don't believe uh, that keeping firearms is a right. I was a member of the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia, but have no time for the National Rife Association. I'm a farmer with a cattle property near Goulburn in New South Wales, but don't vote for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. I think the Australian government intrude too much on everyday life, but accept the need for highly restrictive firearms legislation. I would probably own an AR-15 semi-automatic centerfire uh, if the Lord allowed me to, but fully endorse the restrictions preventing me from having one. I believe the nine ninety six NFA requires substantial recasting, but reaffirm the spirit of the agreement and uphold its its underlying principles. Now, the first thing people are going to say to me is, which is what we just spoke about. I mean, you're a category A, B, C or A, B, C uh, license holder. You have a semi-automatic weapon, rimfire, centerfire. I don't think it really matters. Can you understand how people are probably going to listen to this show and say, "Well, that's extremely hypocritical of you," because just because you're a farmer, you're able to own these types of firearms?
1: No, I don't, I don't see hypocrisy at
0: all. How, how don't you see the hypocrisy by saying you'd own one but other people can't, 99% of the, the general community can't own one?
1: Well, there's, there's two things. First of all, I didn't make the laws. Um, I abide by them. The second thing I'd say is there is a difference between having, in my view, uh, having a 22 semi-automatic and having a centerfire um, semi-automatic. I, I think they're different. Having said that... Why are they um, different? Why are it, they different? Well, we know why they're different. The power of the, of the projectile uh, is different. And uh, the government decided that it was willing to let people have uh, well, wind fire semi-automatics if they were farmers, because that was necessary for the work of farming, whereas they didn't think that the general community, and, and, and certainly farmers, but not also have... Uh, semi-automatic centrifiers. Uh, that's what they decided. Jason, I didn't, I didn't make the law. Now, uh, you might say, but I'm defending parts of it, and I am. I think it makes sense, given that the four shooting sprees that I've mentioned involved, um, semi-automatic centrifiers, that therefore some restriction on that went some way to telling the public that the government wanted to do something about those things.
0: Do you think taking away those semi-automatics has made the country safer or stopped mass shootings?
1: I don't think anyone can say that. The fact that there hasn't been one of those episodes, aside from uh, Alan Zhang at Monash University using handguns, all you can say is that there was a national firearms agreement. It prohibited certain firearms. We haven't had a repeat of one of these episodes since that time. Now, there's two ways to look at this. Is One, is it cause and effect, or it just happens to be that those things haven't happened since that time? Um, I don't think anyone can say, and given that there is a grey market, there are firearms out there which were prohibited after 1996, that some of those um, continue to float around, but none of them have been used uh, other than Manharan Monas, the Lint Cafe siege, uh, and that, as, as we know, was a shotgun that, to which he had no entitlement to are possessed, um, I don't think you can say that the NSA's done that. It just hasn't happened since that
0: time. But it shows in the community that you own semi-automatic rim fires that in the community in hands of good people they're not a problem. I mean, you're the prime example of that.
1: Uh, well, you could say that. Um, I'm, I'm saying that in response to those four events, the government made a determination that people shouldn't have send a fire semi-automatics, and I'm saying, okay, I think there's something in that. People have to not just be safe, but feel safe. Now, it, it, it might seem egregious to us, but John Howard took the view that people have to feel safe as well as be safe. Now, by doing something about those firearms, he, now, you might say fairly or unfairly, or properly or improperly, it helped people to feel more safe. And that was, I think a large part of the reason for doing it. Now, the fact that I own semi-automatic wind fire, um, people can call me a hypocrite uh, if if they like. Um, I don't use it terribly often. Uh, you might say that's irrelevant. Um, the law says I can have one. I can have one. If the law said that I couldn't have one, then I would, I would surrender it.
2: The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried and true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass, enhanced with T-star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit Visit to find your local dealer. Zeiss. We make it visible.
0: I wanted to talk about uh, Sporting Shooters Association during the declaring your hand. You said you uh, you were a member, but you're not now. What's the reasons? What are your pros and cons of the Sporting Shooters Association?
1: Uh, well, none other than the fact that I uh, let my membership lapse because I feared that when this book came out, people would say, oh, it's a member of the double Therefore, he's part of the gun lobby. Therefore, we can dismiss him. Um, Simon Chapman on Radio National, just by virtue of me owning a firearm, said, oh, well, he's self-interested and he can't be heard on this matter. In other words, he's unreliable, he's biased, he's, he's self-interested. And I, it seems to me that by not being a member of any organisation, uh, I was in a better position to say, I'm just a licensed firearm owner and these are my views. Now, Jason, can I stress that if you feel that uh, people ought to own a semi-automatic centrefire, then you're perfectly at liberty to make that case. I'm not saying that you can't make that case. I'm saying for the purposes of my argument and wanting to assure the people that, you know, modest reforms are what I'm wanting uh, is that that wouldn't be one of the reforms I would be seeking. But I'm not stopping you doing that. I'm stopping other shooters doing that. I think, though, in the current environment, the likelihood of that kind of reform is also zero.
0: Do you think they're doing a good job, though? Do you think they could be doing a better job? Where could they go better? What could they do in the future? Do you think they could do better? This is the SAA. Yeah, the SAA. Yeah, in regards to gun reform, in regards to advocating for shooters, hunters... Um, you know, I've always been of the opinion, you know, these laws of the NFA, I mean, this is where a lot of the profit, this is why they've got 200,000 members, because uh, John Howard, I guess, didn't foresee this in regards to the NFA, that, you know, 90 plus percent, I don't know the exact figure, but 90 plus percent of their profits come from the NFA, so why would any organisation cut off their own leg and cut off 90% of their profits?
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, you call it profit, I would call it income, and what I would say is that It's an organisation which you and I can join. We could be elected to the executive and we could say that the funds that are coming in are not being used uh, in the best interests of those who are its members, the shooters, and we could decide that, well, you know, if we do have to join an organisation, then let's join one that, that has all the benefits of collective strength and plus the funds that are collected, whatever the membership rates are, because that's also, uh, the membership is, is, is fees are set by the executive. You and I could join, we could get a group together, we could secure leadership positions and change it. Um, none of it's set in stone. We've all got the you know the capacity, if we're accepted as members, to, to change the way that it acts. I would say that um, there are times when the SSAA and some of its advocacy has given the impression that, if things were different, uh, if the mood was different, then it would want to see the NSA scrapped completely. Now, that's a view that people are entitled to have. The difficulty is, is when people say that, it then makes people think that, no, no, they want to go back to the pre-1996 days, uh, and and in the current climate, that's not going to occur. So my commentary on the SSAA is from the point of view of trying to establish a case for some reform and some things that people say and some things that people do don't help persuade legislators that uh, a case for reform is is one they're going to accept. Um, You have to be restrained and prudent. Now, if people are angry and people are frustrated with all of this, I kind of get that. But the way uh, to seek change is not to get more angry and more frustrated, um, is either to have candidates who you elect to legislatures and then they work from within to bring about change. Um, and that's a long-term prospect. Um, these things are not going to change quickly or easily. And that's why I'm suggesting that creating a mood in which change is more conducive, that's where we ought to be aiming.
0: But I'm, I'm just not talking about the double S, double A here, but many organisations don't have the required people at the top echelons to be able to make that case no disrespect to a lot of shooters, but we have you know, a lot of people in senior positions that are you know, old school hunters or they're people that don't really know anything about gun laws and they're just not strong enough to be able to make the case. I think they're just too weak in being able to make the case. Even if my opinion is strong, why can't they make the case? Are they just not up to speed to be able to make the case for certain types of reform? Um,
1: look, maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case. I mean, as I'm speaking to you now, I'm looking at my office window I am the person nearest, who works nearest to Parliament House, who's not in it. So I'm only 400 yards away from Parliament House, where my office is at Old Parliament House. And I have to say that I I do have a sense of how the place works and all its difficulties. And look, people do get frustrated because it is complex and it is slow moving. And there's all sorts of people whose voices are heard that are alarmist, or they're not truthful, or they're prejudicial. Um, and all I can say is that, uh, you know, we shooters, 99.9% of us that are law-abiding, and that we, are, we ourselves pose no threat to public safety. In fact, people like yourself actually make the country a better place because you deal with, 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 with ferals. Um, all we can do is continue to, to, to be law-abiding citizens to do the right thing, and for those in organisations... If they are not able to advocate for their members politically as well as they might, they either get the skills or they recruit people who can.
0: Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au. Quality gear at affordable prices. I just wanted to head on to, and we'll have a little bit of a break in a minute, but uh, page 71, I thought this was pertinent, and we're talking about you know, the rise of political parties after 1996. So page 72 says, This is of the Shooters, Fishers, and Farmers Party. The party platform extends well beyond the hopes and aspirations of shooters and makes the unwarranted assumption that our attitudes to firearm legislation will reflect our views on immigration and citizenship. I don't want to be associated with a range of views I personally find repugnant. While the Shooters Party is dedicated to advancing the shooter's interests, which makes sense, promoting reactionary policies that are not connected to shooting does not. In fact, the party's illiberal policies on domestic issues and ill-informed attitude towards international affairs makes it easier for journalists and activists to portray shooters as ignorant rednecks aligned with ultra-nationalists. Tell us about these shooters, fishers, and farmers, Party. I guess we have. So I don't vote for them in New <laughs> South Wales either. To be brutally honest, for for reasons totally different than yours. But it seemed throughout the book that you know definitely. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. That immigration seemed to be, and citizenship issues seemed to be uh, a problem. I mean, I've got my own personal you know views on citizenship and immigration. Um, that's from I guess my own personal. But why is that a major problem for you?
1: Yes, it is because. A Shooters, Farmers and Fishers party ought to be that Shooters, Farmers and Fishers. And I, well, first of all, I think it would be better if the party were just on shooters because I don't know necessarily that the views of shooters converge with those of Farmers and Fishers, but put that to one side. I, Jason, standing behind all of that, have a bigger issue, which is um, firearm owners would be more effective in their advocacy if they work through the two major parties rather than set up a party which will always be a minor party which will not in the end bring about the kind of reforms that we want. I would rather see uh, shooters be involved in the Labour Party and in the coalition parties to change their views or to create a constituency to change their. That's where I mean that's where the NFA came from. And if you uh, deal with the major parties, you'll be far more successful at getting reforms than having a few people in Parliament who might say the things that you like but can't introduce legislation that has any chance of being of being passed. So I think that uh, a single-issue party like the Shooters originally were, I think, mute their message when they say, we've also got views about citizen immigration. So what I'm saying is, I don't care what your views are of citizenship and immigration. If I'm concerned about firearms, I'll either vote for a single-issue party, which there now isn't one, or I will say, all right, I'm going to direct my um, influence efforts at members of the coalition parties and the Labor Party because that's the place where the reform is most likely to come.
0: So the way you're saying it now, and I, I had, I've listened to all your interviews on ABC Radio National, the way you talk to me now, although we disagree on something, you sound very reasonable, yet... I mean, the, the way it's written in the book is, is uh, the only – I've actually read it twice, Tom. I read it twice because we obviously postponed the interview for a whole week. And the only term I guess I can use, the way you sounded just then, sounded fine to me. But when I read the text of the book – and I guess you're being more descriptive, so I guess that's reasonable. But, you know, uh, the only thing I can say that would probably make you understand is – when I hear you on radio, I think the guy doesn't sound too bad. I might disagree with some things, but then when I read the book, I get a, a, a Jekyll and Hyde—like uh, the same person on the radio is not the same person writing this book. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm sorry I, to put it look. that way, but it's just that's how I feel. I've written it twice, going, "Am I getting it wrong? Am I too pro gun? Am I too... Am I seeing it through some you know, beer goggles, so to speak?" And I, I I read it again, and I thought, "No, I'm absolutely not. It's like two different people."
1: Well, um, I'm only one person. I only have one set of views. I will always, well, we usually when we speak and when you hear someone's voice and it's inflection, you will generally then get a different view of the same set of words than if you just read them on a page. Now, I'm speaking to you and I'm by extension speaking to your listeners and we're having a conversation and I can clarify some of the things that I've said and add perhaps some context to it. When you write a book, and this book was much longer, and the book that people will read, because I wanted to put more of this explanatory material. My publisher said, well, going, it's too long. They asked for a 50,000-word book. I wrote 74,000 words. We agreed on 63,000 words. Um, when you put things in a the book, you are putting an argument. I'm putting an argument in a book read by people who I won't be able to speak to like I'm speaking to you. So it may seem in the book that some of these things are either harsh or they're said without qualification, but I've not said anything different to you than that is in the book. And uh, sometimes I think look, books have got drawbacks, Um, but against that, I can put an argument in a book but I can't put in an interview because it takes more time to explain. So when we, for instance, get to something like the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution... Um, I wrote a chapter that's only half as long as I intended in the book. But there is a reason that I say that the NFA surprises, that the rather the second amendment surprises me and why I think it's not a good idea. And there's reasons for me saying, look, there's another school of thought that says the current interpretation of the second amendment is not the natural reading of it. Um, all I can say is that I'm not a chameleon. I'm not speaking to you differently than I would speak Uh, then if I was on the ABC, I'd say the same things. I have said the same things. Uh, I'm the same person in the book. And so uh, I think that the important thing, and I try to do it, is to understand what the writer's trying to tell me uh, when I'm the reader uh, and sometimes ask the kind of questions you've asked. Why is he writing the book in this way? Who's the intended audience? And is he writing some things for effect? So because I can see Parliament House through my office here, I'm partly writing for the parliamentarians that I know who work 400 yards in my office, who I want to influence. And sometimes you need to say things in a way that for them is a basis from which they can act. Um, special pleading, and I suppose when we talk about these things, sometimes we can sound like we're pleading. Pleading doesn't work when you're trying to do political advocacy. In the end, it's, it's, it's arguments, and I've tried to put arguments that are coherent and compelling in the book.
0: Hmm. I, I got the feeling when reading the book, and again, let me know if this was your feeling and intention of the book, that you were, maybe you're going to disagree, but you're extremely hard on shooters, and I think maybe you've done that to come from a middle ground, that uh, if I put more grief, which I felt, on the shooting community, it's going to give my opinions... Uh, I, I guess you'll hold more weight in those opinions. Is that correct or incorrect?
1: No, look, I would I would have to say that part of it is, and if you try to find middle ground, then you need to say, well, look, I think there's some things wrong with the so-called gun lobby. I don't think there is a gun lobby. I said in the book, I don't think there's a gun lobby in Australia.
0: I would agree let's with you with one the, 100%. Of, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, look, for want of a better term, let's call it the gun lobby. There's things that the gun lobby does that are not smart. OK, and if I'm going to be even handed, I've got to say, yep, that wasn't smart. And then I look at Gun Control Australia, uh, which I think is an organisation of perhaps no more than 15 people whose influence is infinitely greater than either its constituency or I think the cogency its arguments deserve to put that to one side. If you're going to try and say, here's middle ground, I'm a reasonable person, I can see both sides. Sometimes you need to say things about the shooters and I'm I'm a shooter to say things about other shooters for people to say all right look this guy's prepared to see that there's two sides to this and that that group of which he is a member on on one account which is I'm a firearms owner yeah they're also capable of doing things that are not in the best interests of uh, of either a good debate uh, or a responsible consideration of all the issues so yes you need to write in such a way and it may have seemed that I was hard on shooters. Um, I was trying to show that, look, you know, there is some middle ground and there's kind of some fault on both sides, but we need to move forward when it comes to reforming the NFA, which is not one side saying no change and another side saying we want everything to change. Uh, and if, if it looks as though shooters want a hamburger with the lot, in other words, they want the whole thing to go, then there won't even be a debate because no one will enter a discussion because no one will think there's any point because they're not going to give way to that degree.
0: I guess um, if people were asking me, Tom, I'd probably say I want you know, the hamburger with the lot with extra bacon. You know? <laughs> That's how I feel about it. But I want to just draw yourself to one thing because we've got a lot to go through, and I hope you've got time to continue on with me. But um, I want to talk about, just, just quickly, page 71. This is about shooters, fishers, and farmers before we head into some other really exciting topics that we've got. You said, the desire to broaden its appeal has the potential to dissipate its energies across too many fronts and alienate its base amongst shooters, many of whom have no interest or connection with agriculture so i found that interesting it probably went back to what you said before do you think uh, extending out to other avenues it should have just stayed the shooters party
1: yes i think that i mean if i i'm not a member and i've never been involved in it and i'm not involved with it now um what i would say is that you know um who do you stand for uh what kind of things do you want um and i would have said john tingle's original vision for the shooters party seemed to me to be a better one uh now, I know that they've tried to broaden the remit to Farmers and Fishers because there's some, you know, uh, disappointment with the National Party and because in a place like, for instance, in southwest New South Wales, uh, where there's probably not enough shooters to get enough votes to get elected, um, they've expanded it. But I, I, I think it's a mistake. And I do think it's a mistake to, you know, to canvass some issues which make shooters look like rednecks. Um and that's one of the things I find uh, really disconcerting because people say, you know, you're a professor of a university and you're a firearms owner. I said, yeah. Well, we thought firearms owner, or we'd like to think of firearms owner as people who are rednecks. And you know, well, they're not. They're all walks of life. Uh, they're responsible people. 99.9% are law abiding. Um, you know, we, we, we find shooting sports, uh, hunting, whatever is, is you know, kind of what we want to do either as a profession or a vocation and I I really do think that um, the needs of hunters are different from the needs of farmers which are different to the needs of sporting shooters uh, and the the different disciplines. Just cobble the groups together in order to get enough votes because of the way our system works but at the same time I think you lose focus and I, I would I'm not going to vote for a minor shooting party I hasten to add, I'd rather work within a major party to, and I'm not a member of any party, I should stress that. I'd rather work within a major party to influence its people to say, look, there is scope for change to create an appetite for change and then to bring about change. That's what I would prefer. All
0: right. So I want to talk about the NRA, which was a, you know, a bit of a hot topic in your book as well. Uh, we had a muzzers written in, or it's actually recorded a question. So I'm just going to play that now and we'll come back.
2: Yeah. G'day, Mr. Frame. Hi, my name is Muzz. Look, I want to address a couple of things that I've heard in the ABC interview when you uh, spoke with the interviewer on ABC uh, in regards to commenting on your book and some of the comments you had to make in regards to the Second Amendment, I feel that you're, you're a historian and, a, and an academic, but I feel you have very little understanding of history because the way you speak of the Second Amendment and the way you speak of the NRA and the American right to bear arms is with a certain lack of understanding of what is the purpose of the Second Amendment. And uh, I find out really a big issue a big problem when it comes to you trying to talk about gun laws uh, mainly because you don't seem to understand why the first and the second amendment are important to Americans and why it's made America the country that it is the founding fathers of the United States wanted the monopoly of violence to be in the hands of the people so that the government could never become a tyrannical government and rule over the people with an iron fist. The people would always have the power uh, to overthrow the government by violence if necessary. And that was a very important part of the American constitution, the way it was framed. So you had the right to speak freely and you had the right to freedom of press, freedom of religion and all those things. And you also had the right to bear arms to defend those things. You speak with such disdain about the Second yet I find it quite hypocritical. I would like you to address the hypocrisy in some of these comments from yourself and, you know, politicians like John Howard and other politicians in the Western world who quite willingly and quite happily enjoy American protection yet sneer at all the ideals that's made America the country that it is today. They sneer at their gun laws. They even quite often sneer at First Amendment, to be honest, and I find that quite problematic. I just don't think there would be a Western world, if you will, without the United States. Yet here you are, we're speaking with absolutely nothing but disgust with uh, the Second Amendment. And I find that quite disappointing from someone who's supposed to be a historian.
1: Look, the National Rifle Association exists to uh, engage in political advocacy in the United States. Uh, That's where the organisation was established and that's what its main remit is. The big difference between the United States and Australia is we don't have the Second Amendment. We don't have a constitutional right to hold firearms in any capacity. It's something that governments, both federal and state, can deal with. Obviously, the federal government only controls imports and the state government controls the actual possession of firearms. But the NRA, and the reason that I'm opposed to it, is twofold. The first one is, is that those who are the adversaries of shooters in Australia will use unfairly, outrageously, the idea that anything that shooters want in Australia that can be tied to the NRA means that all shooters are irresponsible because that's the way they see that the NRA. And I think the second reason is that the NRA is always the go-to organisation when there is a shooting spree in a public place in the United States. And it seems, again, rightly, wrongly, fairly or unfairly, I think unfairly, that it's incapable of sympathy for the victims, insists upon individual rights, and that by virtue of that advocacy... Um, is indifferent to the public safety uh, of most Americans. Now, it isn't for Australians to tell Americans how to run their own country, and they won't listen to us anyway. That's fair enough. They're a sovereign country. They uh, have a long history, and they'll make decisions about their own public life. But it does seem to me that we in Australia ought not tactically uh, have connections with the NRA because it makes it easier for Australian opponents of uh, firearm owners and firearm reform to simply demonise Australian firearm owners uh, when the two countries are very different and attitudes within them are very different too.
0: Uh, page 144, I found this very interesting too. You said, The two critical things that distinguish Australia from the United States are the Second Amendment and the existence of the NRA. Australia has neither. The first is a hurdle and the second is an obstruction. I do not read the Second Amendment as protecting a fundamental human right and I do not see the NRA as protecting basic individual freedoms. I think in your book, if I'm correct, but I've got mine here, Columbia versus Heller in 2008, McDonald uh, versus Chicago 2010. Uh, states are now bound to respect the Second Amendment amendment shall not be infringed what is hard to understand about that what are you not getting about that
1: well the first thing that you have to say is that they were split decisions they were not unanimous decisions so on the court there were learned jurists who took the view that the view say, of justice scalia uh, which is the most widely uh, quoted opinion in relation to mcdonald um, that justice scalia's position was not one that they could sustain there are different ways of reading the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and there are different ways of dealing with history. And it's only recently uh, that these views have been the views that have been upheld within the United States Supreme Court. Um, When you read it, I don't think, in my view, the the obvious and most plain read is to uh, give an individual a right of self-defense at home. But, look, that's what their court has decided, a majority decision. They have rules and regulations for determining what the constitution means and how it will be applied. They've made that decision. Um, that's for them. That's the United States. That's not Australia. We don't have that in our constitution. Uh, and that's a big difference between the two. The NRA, I would argue, is probably one of the world's most powerful advocacy groups. And there are times, I think, when the NRA... Uh, wanting to stick up for the rights, and, rights and entitlements members, and that's what it exists to do. I think some of those uh, its views ought to be tempered by the fact that America now has increasing numbers of shooting degrees in public places. Now you and I might say, well, having an Australian style NFA won't stop that. Um, okay, that's an argument that uh, that we can have. But my point about the N about the uh, the NRA is only connected to Australia, it has a right to exist in the US, and I've got nothing to say about that, is the way in which it's used to demonise Australian mm. shooters, because rightly or wrongly, it has a terrible reputation in this country among the non-shooting community. And if you and I, shooters, want change, then aligning ourselves with the NF, with the NRA is going to make it easier for our adversaries to say, see, if we don't restrain these people, they, they will have or do have the views that the NRA have and a lot of Australians regard those as scary views.
0: I mean, no, no decision's ever going to be unanimous. And I think one of those, I'm not sure if it was Columbia versus Heller or uh, McDonald's versus Chicago, was 5 4. But I mean, that's democracy, isn't it? That's democracy. They voted. That's the end of the story. I mean, what, what's. I, I don't understand the issue. I don't. It doesn't matter if there was some, uh, I guess, resistance at 5 4. I mean, the fact is that the Second Amendment must be respected. I just. When people say, you know, can't they just get rid of the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment is there to stop the government doing exactly what they're trying to do now. I mean, Obama was the best gun salesman, always talking about, you know, banning guns. I mean, some of the gun manufacturers probably don't like Trump because under Trump, he's pro-NRA and pro-Second Amendment. You don't sell as many guns under a pro-gun president as you do with an anti-gun president. But you, you brought up mass shootings, which is very interesting, too. So in, in countries um, that have semi-automatic weapons, so well, I guess up until uh, yeah, six months ago, it was, it was New Zealand as well, but Canada, Sweden, Czech Republic, Germany. Germany has one of the lowest gun homicide rates in the world. They have these types of firearms. Uh, so does Sweden, so does the Czech Republic. Uh, yeah, it just goes to show you can have these guns in the community, and this is why all discussion about getting rid of these firearms because there's going to be mass shootings, is, it just doesn't stack up when you start looking at it and, and scrutinising it.
1: No, no. Well, I I would say that um, I'm not disagreeing with a point of principle that you can have these firearms and those things not happen. We had four incidents in Australia and the government at that time with bipartisan support. So it was both sides of politics. So, you know, uh, almost all parliamentarians saying, yes, we want to head in this direction. um, That's what that's what happened. So that's the reality that we need to deal with. But that's how the Australian parliament acted at that time. The arguments that shooters can put up, which is to say that maybe you didn't actually target what was the real problem, or maybe the solution that you had was ill-suited to whatever it was that that prompted the initial action, Um, that's the discussion um, to be had. You could say that other countries have these fires and not have these episodes. That's kind of how these discussions occur, and that's how they need to occur, evidence evidence needs to be cited for and against a position. The matter of it being democracy... Can I, can I just is cut in one sec? Sorry, yeah. Tom, can
0: I just cut in one sec? Yeah. But the thing is you only concentrated on America in the book. You didn't concentrate on any countries. You didn't mention... I know it's only your book of so many words and you can't put everything in there. I and mean, We had 138 killed in the Paris shootings and bombings. Uh, they can't own semi-automatic weapons over there. The attackers had semi-automatic weapons and still did what they did with, with quite strict gun control under the French government. So we And you didn't put any of that in the book this is this is the and i'm not saying you're a part of any gun control measure but this is what people like samantha lee do america 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 yet fail to look at any other countries uh, and you know and even up until six months ago new zealand would i say that would i change the laws in new zealand because one person after 25 years since their last shooting killed 50 people is a reason to go and change gun laws when their gun homicide rate is seven people per year from firearms. I mean, it's just an assault on law abiding people. And you didn't put any of that in the book. You didn't mention any other countries, just America. Well, why not?
1: Well, there's two reasons for that. One is there's over 200 countries in the world, and you could say, well, I could have selectively dealt with others. I deliberately didn't do that for a couple of reasons. One of them is that every country's circumstances are different from the other. And it is very difficult to generalise about why there are rates of homicide, suicide and gun crime in different places. The reason, and I think the obvious reason for focusing on the United States, and can I make the point, I have been there 10 times, I've served in American warships at sea, Uh, I'm not anti-American, is that whenever though we have this discussion in Australia, those who are the opponents of firearm owners, they will cite the American experience. So you could say, well, you should have considered France or Germany or the Czech Republic or whatever, but that wouldn't have had traction. What has traction is what uh, I think is the centrepiece of some of the discussion we have in this country, is that, oh, but in the United States, this is what happens. Now, you could say, oh, that's the worst case or that's the most extreme example. I could have done those things, you are right. One, I didn't have space, but secondly, in Australia, whether we like it or not, those who are the adversaries of shooters look at the American situation and they say, this is what will happen if you don't have an NFA. Now that is a, it's, it's an absurd way of arguing, but it's partly the way the debate is shaped. If I'd not dealt with the American situation to say, look, yep, they've got their problems. Yep. They have lots of shootings and they have an NRA and they have a second amendment. Then people would have said, you missed the elephant in the room. Um, Because it's, if you like, where those who are the opponents of shooters draw their examples and draw their fears and base their anxieties. So that's why I address that head on.
0: But in, in my point, it doesn't matter what's going to gain traction. It's just what the facts are. I mean, let me give you another example. Uh, you know, I used to talk about Brazil. They had 59,000 deaths with firearms in 2014. Uh, you know, Bolsonaro was elected on January 1st, 2019. Uh, significantly opened up you know, concealed carry, opened up uh, importation of firearms into Brazil, let people conduct their shooting sports. Homicides dropped by 25% in the first quarter. Sure, he's, I guess he's from the right wing, you might say so partly other parts of his policies may be contributing to that too i'm not saying it's just the gun particular issue but how can gun homicide be down 25 percent in brazil which is absolutely fantastic yet has, has opened uh, reduced restrictions in that country again it's not what the what traction is going to is going to take place in australia it's just it's what the facts are but there was absolutely no opposing view in the book that's my point
1: no no well, and and you've actually just made my point the facts in australia at the moment are not making any difference The facts have not made any difference, Jason, for some years. Look, we can say, and you and I will both agree on some of the facts, that the NFA has not secured all of the benefits, in terms of public safety, that those who are its supporters would claim. We can put facts, we can put facts into the public realm every day to make the point that these things are not making a difference and it's not having an effect. What we need to do is... What gains traction? What will help people to see things differently? If it were just facts alone, we wouldn't be having this discussion, Jason, because we'd already have made the change. Evidence-based policy is not what we have when it comes to firearms. What we have is a politically motivated, culturally sensitive set of regulations that are highly susceptible to opinion, not fact. I'm trying to say, let's deal with the opinion, let's try and address the opinion, not saying there are no facts, but the facts, unfortunately, are subordinate to getting people to see things slightly differently, and that's got to do with with appearances. So what what will begin to persuade people that if we change things, we won't end up with an American situation which people find horrifying? It's trying to address what opinions exist not where the facts lay. So I'm not disagreeing with you about the importance of facts. What I'm saying is that in terms of persuading people there's a case for change, some of it is by addressing opinion, the mood, the mindset of people for whom facts you know some you know, facts make no difference. And if facts were the decisive issue, why is the uh, why does gun control Australia get far more coverage than any sporting sporting shooters organization in Australia? not because it's got better facts, because it gets traction. So uh, I'm not disputing you. I'm simply saying that the kind of book I'm writing and the kind of things I want to see require a change of mood, and that's why I would say traction more than
0: facts. I know you've got to go in a few minutes, and we're going to follow up with part two, but I just want to just do one more part. What's changed in the United States, do you think? I mean, 30, 40 years ago, they had these firearms. They had the Second Amendment. They weren't getting these shootings. I mean, if they were, they were extremely rare. We're having more and more shootings. Uh, is it mental health? Uh, what are the issues that we're seeing? I mean, it wasn't happening 30 years ago to anywhere near the extent that we're having now. Um, do you think you know, the media should stop reporting on these things? I think a lot of these are uh, myself personally, a lot of copycat attacks. They want to get themselves, uh, you know, in, you know, be, basically become Hollywood stars for 36 hours, have their name up in lights. And I mean, I think the media has a lot to answer for. So why 30 years ago not happening or next to not happening at all and now? That's happening majorly.
1: Yes, there's a number of studies that have looked at why shooting sprees in public places in the United States used to be about every three to four years, and now it's down to 139 days, was the statistic I saw the other day. But there's one mass um, shooting spree in a public place once every 139 days, and they're probably becoming more frequent uh, as each year goes by. Um, the reasons for that are many and varied. You've mentioned some of them. I do think that the reporting of these incidents is actually a provocation for some people. Uh, I'm going to go out in a blaze of whatever. Well, I think it's a blaze of evil um, shooting people in public places. I can't think of anything more um, uh, more despicable. So there's a number of factors that the studies are showing that this is happening and they are becoming more frequent. That, that That's a fact. Uh, they are becoming more murderous. Um, people who are unwell, are getting access to firearms. Now, um, how you deal with that, uh, I I don't know that the United States can deal with it as as we would do it. Would you have a buyback? It wouldn't work. It'd be beyond their ability to afford. But certainly there's been a change in the United States, and I think it's added to anxiety in Australia. And the reporting of it in the United States has probably created the copycat thing, the point you made. And I think in Australia they say, oh, oh, look at all these. You know shooting sprees in public places. If we change our firearm laws, that's where we're headed, and that's the bit that uh, that I think ter- terrifies me. Which is why, in answer again to a previous question, why focus on the United States? Because people somehow think that's the alternative to uh, for Australia if we water down, you know, water down the NFA as apart from engaging. I think sensible reform of legislation that's what I'm proposing
0: All right, guys we're going to follow up with part 2 soon Uh, Tom Frame joins me here on AHP to chat about his book Gun Control What Australia Got Right and Wrong Tom can't wait to follow up with you for part 2 thanks for joining me I really appreciate joining me here on AHP thank you
1: good thanks Jason
0: you've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast I hope you enjoyed it See you next time.